It is always good to share with you. We've been endeavoring, taking a little pause from uh, our journey through the Gospel of Mark, just to share and talk a little bit about uh, what's happening, just, and all this is coming from just questions and conversations I've had with many of you. What do you do when the world's in chaos? How do you respond? Um, so this morning, it uh, it's really comes down to this. We started out with, well, how do you do that? At the beginning, the first one we talked about was the first message. How do you deal with that as you know Jesus Christ? It all begins with the gospel. It all begins with you and your relationship with Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ that redeems you, that saves you. There is no other name under which you can be saved in this earth or anywhere else, no matter where that might be, uh, other than the name of Jesus Christ. And so we've come to a place now where we want to try to expand to remember to think that if the gospel is just this, if it's just you and Jesus, your view of the gospel is way too small. And so this morning it's, what do you do when the world around you is in chaos? Now I was reminded this morning of some of the chaos. Um, and it made me laugh about, man, remember, you know, kids in diapers and <laughs> all this stuff when they were little? And I'm on the beautiful side of that mountain because I have grandkids now. It's awesome. <laughs> But it's chaotic, isn't it? When all you think the diapers are just never going to end, right? That's a good chaos, by the way. Even when it's hard and when you're in it, I get it. That's not the chaos we're talking about. The chaos is what we see in culture. The chaos is when you see righteousness and unrighteousness and what transpires. And so what it comes down to is either Christ or chaos, the question that we've been asking, there might be a few more questions you've been considering, um, such as, are those the only two choices? Is it just one or the other? Is there more choices? Well, I would say there's varying degrees of one side of that to the chaos, but Christ is ultimately the only choice that there is. Are there those desire chaos over liberty? Are there people like that? Is the liberty that I have in Christ, is it so offensive to someone else that they would prefer the chaos than Christ? Who decides, by the way? Who defines the terms? And is there anyone in control of this at all? Has there ever been a time when the world has not been in chaos? First Samuel 2.30 says this. This is God speaking. For those who honor me, I will honor. Those who despise me, I will lightly esteem. You see this same concept in Proverbs 14, 34. The righteous or righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. From the outset, the premise that we decided that we are moving from was as a people, as a body, as a group of Christian people, it's that Jesus is the Son of the living God, the creator and sustainer of all of life, and therefore, he is the one who defines the terms. He is the one who defines all of it because it's his house. The universe is his. And everything that's in it, that's Psalms 24. Earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof. Psalms 89 says the same thing. The heaven are yours, the earth is also yours, the world and all that is in it is yours. You have founded them. You see all through scripture, by the way, um, this kind of outline, you see God's house. It's a three-storied house, if you will, that he created, a building for himself in that you see in the creation uh, account in Genesis. Um, heaven, earth, the sea, you see these rooms, if you will. And then the other half of the Genesis creation is him filling each one of those areas. 
man being the glory of God, the image of God, to be his representative, to have dominion and authority over everything that's been created. And so you see the same concept of of this three-tiered system, if you will, that God created the world. There was a land of Eden, and then Adam and Eve were put in the garden in Eden. So God gives Adam and Eve this representation of this is how the world is supposed to be and as you multiply, as, as families grow, as societies grow, this is what it should look like. As you go out into Eden and then, and then disperse in the rest of the entire world, this is what it should be. That was the only time there was no chaos in the world. But Adam was not content with the station in life that God had given him. And so he succumbed to, succumbed to the temptation of being just like God, knowing both good and the same temptation that Satan availed himself to, and they lost it all. So from that moment until this day, the chaos in some variation has ensued. Romans eight nineteen says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, the chaos, are not worth comparing with the glory that is revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealed, revealing of the sons of God. The creation was subject to futility, not willingly, which is always interesting, but because of him who subjected, who is that? Who's the one who subjected, can't even talk, (laughs) who subjected the world to it? God himself. That's the curse. That's Genesis 3. It was subjected to futility, to the chaos. That creation itself will be set free from its bondage of corruption to obtain freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole world, all of creation, has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. That's a long time. And that's what we live in. The time and moment in history that you and I have been called to live in. And so you could, in essence, sum up the Bible, and I know this is, please don't think of this as arrogant, but in just a handful of words to get this big, broad picture of creation, of corruption, the ensuing chaos that comes from the corruption, and then Christ's consummation. And so you see the same pattern over and over and over again. So the question becomes, where does your liberty come from? What is its foundation? And what is it for? Why do you have it? All of Scripture that you see God setting His people free from the bondage of sin and from the chaos that is created in daily life, if you will. When you think of restoration, when you think of bondage, when you think of God redeeming, one of those major stories in Scripture you see and think about maybe come from the Exodus. Moses, you might be thinking. And even if you look more closely in Scripture, even in just Moses' life, you'll see this same pattern show up. And it's, there's these Exodus uh, deliverance patterns, if you will, all through Scripture from Genesis to Revelations. There is creation, there is a fall of some kind, there's this initial judgment that God gives, there is a decline in either social decline or personal decline, then there's this final judgment, and then there's recreation. And in the grand scheme of salvation, that's what Jesus Christ has done. And again, this is why it all comes down to Christ. It all comes down to the cross. That's where regeneration comes from. So you see it in the creation story. They have creation. You have sin in the fall. God judges Adam and Eve and Genesis chapter 3, you see the social decline for the next three or four chapters, then you see the final judgment. What's the final judgment in that story? The flood. But what do you see? Recreation. Who is that? Noah. 
So you see this pattern. You see the same pattern with God dealing with a people of his own, calling a people out of Egypt, where Pharaoh says, no, these are my people. I don't know your God. I don't know anything about him. Why should I let, him, why should I let these people go? And at the end of that story, God declares, these are my people. And that, to me, in between is all the chaos that you see. God bringing his people out of Egypt, a physical people that he is calling to himself, a foreshadowing of what we are as the church. They end up in Kadesh. Remember the 12 spies? Do you remember the song? 12 were bad, 2 were good? <laughs> Please remember that. Such a cool song. Oh, that's where they blew it. They got to the place that God called them to be, to where he was sending them into the nation. And, and the 12 spies goes in and they, and they see everything that God declared to them. How great it was. The bountifulness of the whole land. And they come back with this report. It's just like he said. It's the most amazing thing you ever said. And 10 of them go, but it's too big. It's too much. The people are too, they're just bit bigger, better, faster than we are. Can't do it. And so they sinned. They feared man rather than God, right? So what's the initial judgment? The initial judgment is God bounces them right back into the wilderness. And for 40 years, the decline happens until the final judgment of that generation that came out of Egypt died in the wilderness, not ever seeing the promised land. And then you have recreation, freedom, liberty in Joshua as he begins the conquest of the nations. The whole point of that, and Exodus is a phenomenal study, is that the foundation of liberty is founded in no one else other than God himself. It takes the form of salvation in Jesus Christ. And to a lesser form, what we know and come to understand, at least as a nation, when we are so inundated with it all here in this country, because it's just who we are, it's hard to get outside of that for us. But it is a lesser form to be lived out in that sense. See, theology, theology is the fundamental to liberty that you and I have. It's true to who we are as a people, as an American nation. But what is it for? What is your liberty for? And what are the results? All the revolutionaries, it seems, of our day that we hear about now talk of how evil America is and its foundations and where it was endowed from and all of those things that you hear. But they seem to forget we're not the ones who created it. Uh, we were porting it back over from Europe, namely England. The Magna Carta and all of those other documents that were created so long ago. And even our founding fathers, if you read and listen to some of their own stories, they were, I would say, reluctant revolutionaries. They would have been fine with England had they not done their job. See, history is full of revolutions. There are a dime a dozen but rarely, if ever, does it lead to true liberty. In fact, I would say the revolutionaries of today, in our time, the secular version, it looks more like the French Revolution. But you can see where liberty shows up in the book of Exodus. You can see what God has done in our attempt in this nation to try to live something like that out. And you and I have been the benefits of that for quite some time. But what are the results? What is it for? What are you to use this liberty that you have for and to be blessed by it here in this place? Let me just give you a few and we're going to settle on one at the end. First is this. You are now free to be his people. In Christ, the liberty that comes through salvation, you are to be his people. Numbers 15. Uh, 
41 says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. In Christ, the salvation that he gives, you are now free to be his people. Why is that so significant? Because before, without him, you were not free to do anything. The only thing you knew was darkness. The only thing we knew was sin. That's all we knew. That's all we had. Until God calls. And you are now free to be his people. Free to be redeemed. Free to know him. Free to serve him. Leviticus 25. Leviticus 25.55 says this, For it is to me that the people of Israel are now servants. They are servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. What do you think of when you think of servant? Does freedom, is that the first word that comes across your mind? Paul addresses this too. In the news, you are either a slave to righteousness or you are a slave to sin. But you will be a slave to something. Who gives you the most liberty? Who gives you the most freedom? The results of God's liberty is that you are now free to serve Him. You are free to praise Him, Isaiah 43, 21. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, you are my servants. Uh, that's not it. 43, I'm in, that's the next chapter. Uh, the people whom I have formed to myself, that they might declare my praise. He's talking about creation ahead of that. You're free to praise him. Praise him for what? All the goodies he gives us? No, although you should. To be thankful, to be grateful, for certain. But to praise him for just who he is. His immense character, his holiness, all the things that we saw last week in Isaiah chapter 6, the things that Isaiah connected with God before he could be sent out, all the things that God did for him and to him and to the nation of Israel. To praise him for just the fact that he is. You're free to be holy as well. That's what this liberty brings you. Leviticus eleven forty-five. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt, of the land of Egypt, to be your God. You will be holy, for I am holy. You are free now in Christ to be holy. All my growing up in church life and that kind of thing, for me this was really hard because to the depth of my core, remember, I know how wretched I truly am. There's nothing holy about me. And so somehow I translate that, oh, you've got to be perfect you have to do all the right things and be all and say everything and just, you have to get it all right. And the more you try that, the more frustrated you get because you know there's no possible way for you to, to keep living up to that. And so there is an element of perfection to holiness. But this idea is to be set apart, just like God comes to Israel and Egypt and sets them apart and brings them out. They're taken from one thing to another, set apart for His purposes, to live for Him to experience what it means to be in Him. All the things that God would desire you to be and to live and to have. And that shows up in the form of His covenant, in the form of His promises to you as a people. Exodus chapter 3, verse 8 is 
Moses is interacting with God at the burning bush. I have come down, God's saying, to, to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, the land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, and so on. You are now free to experience God's promises to you. And finally, you're free to fight for these promises. For your kids, for your family, to instill godly values to them, to repeat this generation after generation. Proverbs 22.6 should be familiar maybe to some of you. Train up a child in the way he should go, right? When he's old, he will not depart from it. What is that? That's discipleship. That's value training. That's, we mentioned that last week. Someone's discipling your kids. Somebody's discipling your grandkids. It's either the culture or it's the word of God. It's you in control of that. It will be Christ or it will be chaos. It will be the spirit of life or a spirit of death. And that's what I see right now, I guess, as a nation. Can you live without Disney? (laughs) Can you trust them with their values to your children or your grandchildren? According to Disney, I mean, I'm always, I shouldn't be amazed, but I am. I'm always like, wow, that is just, as you study, as you prepare, do that to, to bring a message. And then all these things happen in culture. It just amazes me that this is kind of where we are. But according to Disney and other corporations, and certainly the highest levels of our government, it is now moral, good, right, appropriate to indoctrinate your children to gender, gender fluidity, sexual orientation at the earliest ages possible. That was this week. Should you disagree with this ideology as a parent, grandparent, or just a citizen? Don't worry. The Department of Education is currently evaluating whether or not this law that was passed in Florida violates the civil rights law, where they can now, they won't, but whereby they can discover if they can or if it's possible to take your children away from you so that some bureaucrat or some bureaucracy can now tell your child that he is a she and she is a he because you as a parent are in violation of their civil rights because apparently you can now read back into history today's ideas that they didn't even think about 50 years ago and somehow deem them law. Now, you could be discouraged by all of that and what's happening in our culture, and it would be easy to do so. But the good news is is that this isn't new. And this should not be new to you as a Christian. The good news is is that there is always hope and there is always recreation. You and I just need to determine where we are possibly in the process. But God has called us here, now, in this place, in this time. In order for the social or society to function, and to function to its maximum uh, opportunity. Liberty in its spiritual sense is the foundation to all of that. The only meaning you can gather from that is from the church. That's the recreation taking place. The spiritual, in other words, precedes and determines the social structure, the social norms, the social traditions, and that's what we've had for so many Years that have allowed liberty that you and I understand it in a civil sense. So liberty or freedom is gained or lost on the condition of obedience to God's standards. 
his moral law, or they will be forfeited in rebellion to his law. And let me just make this caveat here. America is no different. We don't get a different standard. We are not some special creation that somehow God can't survive without us as a nation. So let me insert this for some of you are now bristling. <laughs> yes, we have had and continue to have a wonderful godly heritage that we will not discount. We want to affirm and thank the God of heaven for what he's given and allowed us as a nation, as a society, to experience and come to know. But you have to realize that God was doing just fine before 1776 and he'll do just fine whatever he deems this nation's lifespan will be. He doesn't need us, in other words. And that's Daniel 5, verse 21, by the way. Isn't this what happened to Israel? Isn't this what you see? No army could stand against them as they came in. There wasn't one. The only way to defeat them was from the inside out. The only way their enemies finally understood how to deal with this nation that no one can stand against was to get them to worship something else other than the one true God. Because they knew at that point the one true God would have to judge them, and he did. What's this nation going to look like? I have no idea. I'm not a prophet, thankfully. I don't know how they slept at night knowing what they knew. But given the direction we are going in, that the people in power who are jettisoning God's revealed standard for their own, the ones that now call evil good and good evil, turning morals and ethics completely on its head, it doesn't end well unless there is a recreation, unless God intervenes and calls the people to himself. See, when all the appropriate institutions in a civil society, a systems, values, traditions for that society, in other words, all the, 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 the Romans 13 things that you read there that Paul describes of what it's supposed to be and what their, what their role and responsibility is, when those good things get tossed out the window, what takes their place? What will be a new institution, the new values, the new traditions? I think it's clear at this point in our history, in this past week for certain, it's just revealed what many of you already knew, where this is headed. And the moral norms that replace this heritage that we have been given by a gracious and merciful God, they will not be the same ones. And you can be certain that it will not lead to liberty or freedom. If you and I have an understanding and a biblical understanding of what liberty and freedom means and God's responsibility and what liberty is for, based on God's standard, when that gets lived out in a society, then the need for civil governance is lessened. They're not needed as much. We truly don't need as many police officers on the force. Why? Because I'm not stealing your stuff. You're not stealing mine. Right? Oh, but you're thinking, Pastor Dale, that's pretty utopian. It is. I understand that. We're very sinful people. There's a need for those wonderful people who put their life literally on the line. But when you come as a, a nation, as a people group, 
and live life as best you can in as meaningful a way as you can as on God's standard. Civic governance, the power that they wield, lessens, and that's what scares them to death, I believe. They lose their power. It can really make you fearful, I think, if you don't know God, if you have not dealt with Him on a personal level, if you've not come to Christ, if you've not come and understood salvation in Him. But even if you have, even then it seems hard to understand the righteous of a nation suffering right along with the unrighteous. Even though you know that Christ is in you, even though you know the well-being and your, your uh, eternal security, if you will, even know you know all of those things, it's still hard. And there's still a cost in choosing in the day-to-day life that you and I live. And this is where this shows up. This is where we are, where you think the gospel has to be bigger than just me and Jesus. It has to affect every aspect of life, of government, of entertainment, art, music, all of it gets permeated. Education, choose whom you will serve this day, but for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua came to the same conclusion in dealing with the nation of Israel. It's knowing that everything being fulfilled in Christ, and you and I living in a moment in time in history where, where some of us get a little frustrated and tense because of what we see going on, recognizing that Christ is coming and there is this ultimate recreation that we are waiting for that we just sung about. But in the meantime, are you willing to fight? So what actions do you take to do that, to be obedient to Christ? Here's the first one, you pray. I'm always reluctant to say the church answer up front, you know, (laughs) right? What do you pray for? Maybe you're like, you know, I prayed at breakfast. Great. Wonderful place to start. But it has to be more than that, I'm afraid. I can't imagine, and I'm still not there yet, to to go off like Jesus to pray all night. I fall asleep. (laughs) I do. What do you pray? Are you committed to praying to a just and holy God to redeem a people? Are you willing to pray Jesus' prayer as he taught his disciples? God, your will on earth as it is in heaven. Are you praying that? Are you praying for the kings, or in our case, government officials, to live quiet and peaceable lives, 1 Timothy 2? Do you pray for one another, knowing that we're already in the chaos, we're here until Christ comes again, but are you praying for your brothers and sisters in Christ? So they can be a a representative to where they live, work, and play as well. The needs that each of us have where we're living. Are you praying for humility to seek the Lord in every area of your life? 2 Chronicles 7.14. One of my favorites. David has plenty of them, but Psalms 35. Do you pray for the salvation of your enemies? And if not the salvation of your enemies, their destruction? You're like, oh, that's not nice. Yeah, it is. That's what God does with evil. He destroys it. That's why we're not living 900, you know, 500 years now. God just doesn't let evil continue. So we pray. We plead. We ask God for revival that only He can accomplish 
to bring his spirit on us where it blows and it comes and it goes, but to maybe do it here, in this place, in this nation once again like it has before. One of those opportunities will come April 26th as a leadership to come together to pray as that Tuesday night. I think it's a Tuesday night. Second thing was we proclaim. What are we proclaiming? Remember, first and foremost, we proclaim Christ. We proclaim the gospel, the salvation, but also his obedience, your obedience rather, to the gospel itself. That's what Jesus reminded us last week, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. It's not just Jesus and me. It's not just your personal salvation. It has to have influence. It has to move. It has to go somewhere. It cannot be bottled up. And this is where we share and proclaim God's standard. To speak the truth in love, to truly love someone, that's the starting point. That Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That was Mark's starting point, if you remember. But also that he is Lord. He has a demand on your life now. For you, as Paul describes it, to walk this worthy walk to which you've been called. To kill the sin that you once lived in. Kill it. You don't play around the edges. You destroy it. You crucify it. You put it away. Paul's method of him, him, him doing that was how? You remember how? I have to die daily, he says. It's not a one-time thing. I have to wake up every morning. God's mercies are new every morning to me. And I have to wake up every morning dying to myself, dying to that. Man, is that hard. And that's the message you proclaim. But it also gets lived out in other areas, again, of life. Family life, marriage life. To speak the truth to a lost culture now makes you deplorable. It makes you all kinds of things. One of those things you speak in truth and love is that men are men and women are women. And they cannot be the other. And if there is any confusion in that, if there's any confusion here, you are in the right place because God redeems his people. He brings you to himself. You become a new creation. All those desires and thoughts get recreated in the way his standard gets applied. You are totally new. You don't rename uh, or stay in your old sense and then just put a new name on it. It all begins with the gospel. And we proclaim it. When you proclaim it, you have to be prepared. Be a prepper. Oh, come on. I know some of you watch that show. <laughs> not bomb shelters. Not five-gallon buckets of peanut butter or ballistics. I know some of you like the ballistics, but no. <laughs> you start spiritually prepping. That's first and foremost. That's primary. Then you can use wisdom on what you need to do. You can think about that with what you see in Ukraine and Russia. I mean, all those people that maybe they had five-gallon boxes of peanut butter. I don't know. But two million of them are walking out of the country, not carrying that. But use wisdom is all I'm saying. But you have to be prepared. Daniel chapter 1 verse 8 says this, But Daniel resolved. Daniel's prepared. What just happened? What was the chaos in Daniel's life? Well, this is God's judgment. This is where they were in, in that process. This is the final decline of the nation. The final judgment was, you're getting hauled off to Babylon. 
We don't know, but chances are he was separated from his parents. He's being called into the king's service, a conquering king's service. He doesn't want to go. He doesn't want to be separated from his family. He doesn't want to endure all of those things that you're seeing people, you know, moving out of a country just taking nothing but what they can carry. And yet Daniel resolves that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. It seems to me the king's food we are now being forced fed is pretty clear what it is these days. And each of you and I will have to do our own soul searching to come to terms with that and how it affects you, your family, and where that line is for you. But the line is getting clearer and clearer. So be prepared. You'll be praised by people of faith or persecuted by all the rest, or at the very least, misunderstood, just like the first century church was. In fact, just like the first three or four centuries of the church was in Rome. So whether you're praised or persecuted, you need to prepare, Jesus said, to endure to the end. Now, I believe he's referring to the fall of Jerusalem, but we have another end that we're preparing for. 1 Peter 2 says this, What credit is it if when you sin, you're beaten for it? What's the implication? You should be. You endure it. But if you do good and suffer for it, this is a gracious thing to God. This is what you and I have been called to. That's what we need to be prepared for. Finally, the pugnacity. Yep, I had to look that one up. You got to fight. That's what it means. Fight to be faithful. It just had to be with a P, right? (laughs) But you got to fight. Is this a fight worth getting into? To fight for the truth of Christ. Everyone seems to be been so enthralled with this war in Russia and Ukraine, yet it seems to me we don't even recognize a greater invasion and theft of our own liberty in this nation and in respect to our faith in Christ, what it's doing and, and what's happening. Whether it's marriage and the redefinition of marriage, our education system and what they're trying to do, all the things that happen with Disney and what they're promoting this week. We either stand together or we fall as a body of believers to choose Christ over chaos. And the call for you and for me is to stand and fight. To be trained in the weapons of the Lord, His Word. Remember, the weapons of our warfare are not flesh, but of divine power to destroy what? Strongholds. That's the fight. That's 2 Corinthians 10. What strongholds are there? The ones you're going to face in the conversation you'll have at work tomorrow? School? The university? We destroy arguments of every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of Christ. Do you know them? Do you have an answer? Are you willing to engage? We take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience. Disobedience of what? A false ideology of everything that's being counter to Christ, of everything, an idea that comes down the pike. We are not to assault demons. We are not called to cast out Satan or battle against any flesh physically in that sense. But we are to assault the air of the truth. That's our fight. Oh, it may come at some point down the road, and it has all throughout history. And you're seeing it lived out in just in an awful way 
because that's what war is in Ukraine and Russia. But we destroy arguments. The ideological forts, the ivory towers of universities that barricade everybody in themselves so all they hear is themselves. We assault that with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We take every human, satanic thought, or so-called wisdom of this age and are meant to destroy it. To scale the ivory towers in a rescue mission for those inside who believe the damning lies that they're being taught. So what banner will you serve under? As a Christian, if you are, you have already been drafted by the blood of Jesus Christ into the battle. What will your rallying cry be? I would like to offer us one. 1 Corinthians 16, be watchful, stand firm, act like men, be strong, let all you do be done in love. That seems to sum up the battle. The mechanism in which we are to engage, but we have to engage. Your faith has to get beyond just you and Jesus. I hope that's a worthwhile battle. I hope for you it's worthy to be involved in in some area where you live, work, and play. For it will be Christ at the end of the battle who stands alone. That is the hope. All the noise of the current chaos that you and I are experiencing, hearing, all the future chaos that will, be, will come potentially, will all be brought to absolutely nothing. That's the hope. I don't know when and I don't know how it's all going to affect my life or your life, but it is affecting our life. But in the end, it will amount to nothing. <laughs> nothing can stand against the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, they'll yell at you, they'll holler at you, you may get fired. A lot of things can happen in this life. But nothing will stand. That to me is a fight worth getting in and joining. Will you? Will you join the battle? Will you endure it for Christ's sake? Will you stand for truth? It will be Christ or chaos. Father, thank you. Thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. But Father, we sometimes, I sometimes am weak and feeble lose track of where I am in the process and can get so worked up and angry about what is seen and what is heard and what is happening in this life. So Father, I ask for the wisdom and discernment to fight the battle the way you would have it fought. To walk a worthy walk. To be watchful. To pray to stand firm, to be prepared, to act like men, to engage in the battle and not be silent and to endure whatever comes by being strong. But Father, when we engage like you, I pray that what is seen and heard is truly done in love. So Father, wherever we are in our culture, God, I pray for this land, this people who are so seeped in darkness and hopelessness. Father, give us the will to love the lost. Give us the will to ask a question at work maybe, at school, to engage in a gospel conversation 
allow the light to shine in dark places. Father, I realize that the process may take more than my lifetime, but I also know it can happen quickly. But ultimately, Lord, you are in control of it all. So, Father, give us Give us your grace and mercy to endure all things. In Jesus' name, amen.